Hi everyone, welcome to the podcast Byzantium and Friends. I'm Anthony, your host. Like many civilizations, Byzantium has its share of famous women, great women, uh, about whom one writes biographies or plays or even movies. However, in its great women, Byzantium has not been altogether fortunate, and this is largely for two reasons. One, because of the choices that have been made, and second, because of the way in which women in Byzantine civilization have been framed. And what I mean by that is a traditional model of sort of despotic Orientalism that actually comes from ancient Greece, like before anything like, you know, Eastern Roman civilization existed. And the idea is that in a despotic monarchy, so real men, sort of freedom-loving men, are oppressed by a despotic state um, that's run by usually some sort of oppressive, oppressive tyrant figure. And this dynamic gives the opportunity to sort of other kinds of people, especially women and eunuchs at the court, to exercise a kind of power that they wouldn't have in a society of free, equal men. And so these kinds of despotic oriental monarchies tend to be characterized by these scheming, powerful, vindictive women and, and eunuchs who sort of arrange things behind the scenes. You find this kind of theory actually even in Aristotle, um, and it becomes characteristic of the way that Constantinople, the political culture there, were described in Western sources with increasing emphasis on those aspects, you know, into the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries. Now, coupled with that ideological framework, are the problems caused by some of the choices that were made or had to be made or were kind of inevitable or unavoidable. So probably the most famous Byzantine woman ruler is Irene, Irini, who restored the veneration of icons in the late 8th century and ruled in her own name. She was the first person in Roman imperial history to do so. That is, not to be reigning in the name of a minor son or only until she found a new husband or something like that. And Irene is almost like a candidate for sainthood because she restored the veneration of icons, the Council of Nicaea too. However, there is a huge sort of dark stain on her reputation, which is that she not only engaged in conflict with her son when he came of age, but eventually arrested and blinded him in order to rule on her own, so that doesn't work very well. Um, also, her reign, not very successful. She was deposed by a finance minister. All right, second most famous case is Theodora, obviously. And here we have some very, very engaging and graphic descriptions um, of her background and personality by Procopius rightly understood to be rhetorical hyperbole. Um, yet it's not clear what remains once you strip the hyperbole away. In other words, the interest in Theodora is almost entirely that hyperbole. So all of the endless novels that are written and biographies and so on, it's just engaging with that. And if you take that away, it's not that clear what's left. Um, obviously a very important person at Justinian's court, but so were many empresses. And also, it's not entirely clear that Procopius's picture is like entirely made up. We have con other contemporary sources written by people who should have been sympathetic to her, uh, anti-Chalcedonian bishops, like Severus of Antioch, who say pretty similar things about her. All right, number three, Anna Comnena, Anna Comnini. Incredible author, historian, patron of philosophers, interested in philosophy in the 12th century, daughter of an emperor, a major, major source for the reign of her father, Alexius Komnenos. She would actually work great as a kind of, you know, banner figure, so famous woman from Byzantium. That hasn't happened because the whole framework of you know, evil women meddling in politics who shouldn't get involved in things that are, you know, beyond their canon and all that has been applied to her. And instead of her being seen as a real pioneer in how she 
very carefully and in my view successfully walk this fine line between what's expected of a you know proper aristocratic woman at that time and the kind of more masculine traits that one has to have to engage in discussions of politics and warfare and so on. And, and she did that, and she should be given full credit for that. Instead, she's been cast as a sort of you know, vindictive, angry person who plotted against her brother and all of this stuff, which it turns out probably is not even true. And for that, I recommend you to uh, my colleague Leonora Neville's excellent book on Anna, uh, who unravels how all of this just sheer gender discourse was applied to Anna. Uh, and if you strip that away and you see what she's actually doing in the book, it looks very, very different. Uh, but so she's a case where, you know, there's this sort of question mark about her that is entirely of our own making. Or actually, even some people a bit later than her, like Nikita Skoniatis, sort of contributed a little bit to the making of this uh, negative picture of Anna. And finally, we come to the person uh, we'll be talking about in today's uh, episode, and this is Hypatia of Alexandria, a pagan philosopher, uh, brilliant thinker, very, very famous, like a celebrity in her own time, who was brutally murdered uh, by some paraclesiastical organizations working for Bishop Cyril of Alexandria. Hypatia has received, obviously, tons of attention throughout history, but especially in modern times. Um, even as a uh, an icon for feminism, um, there was a film made about her called Agora, which my guest and I talk about uh, at the end of this episode. At the University of Michigan, there's a building called The League, and it has a room with portraits of famous women in it, and she's one of them. Now, of course, you can probably easily guess what the quote, problem with Hypatia is. E- even though in her own lifetime, she seems to have been a uh, a mediating figure who was trying to, you know, uh, de-escalate conflicts because of the way she died and because her death uh, can be used to fuel a sort of pagan versus Christian narrative in the 5th century and, and was for many people at the time. And modern historians generally want to avoid that. Also, um, let's not kid ourselves, a lot of scholarship on Byzantin- Byzantium is produced by uh, people who are sort of very sympathetic to the Orthodox tradition and the theology, and Cyril of Alexandria was one of the most important theologians of his time then and later. And so highlighting Hypatia as like your banner sort of famous woman is problematic um, if you're coming from that point of view. So that's another reason why there's a question mark of controversy above her that had nothing to do with her. But uh, there you have it. Hypatia is the topic of discussion with my guest today, um, who is Silvia Ronque, professor of Byzantine studies at uh, Roma Tre University in Rome, Italy. She's a very prolific author, um, has written uh, scholarship uh, and also more popular books uh, on all periods of Byzantine history from the beginning to the end, and uh, often appears also in, in Italian media, talking about Byzantium and broader cultural issues as, as public intellectual and someone I've been wanting to meet for a very long time. She has also written a very successful book in Italian on Hypatia. I've been through a number of editions and was recently published in English translation. Uh, now, I should warn you, um, it's not exactly an easy book to read. It, it doesn't proceed in a, like a linear biography. If, if you know nothing about Hypatia, um, it, you, you'll find that you're, you're jumping between the, the sources and the modern reception, because the book is about all of the different images of Hypatia that have accumulated over the centuries that we have to kind of work through and past in order to get to you know, the true story, which is the subtitle of the book. A couple notes before we get started. Uh, there are a couple of places where Sylvia says integral, by which she means what in American English we would call extremist or fundamentalist. Uh, Second, again, thanks to Medievalist.net for reposting these episodes. Uh, So let's get right to it. Here's my conversation with Sylvia. Sylvia, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hello, Anthony. So I have to say, so big announcement. I I have been working on a new big history of Byzantium uh, for many, many years. (laughs) Actually, you know for how many years? For exactly as long as it took to build a Hagia Sophia. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's going to be a shrine. And I finished the first draft of it this morning. So I have to say, 
your name came up, like I kept coming across it in the bibliography from pretty much the beginning to the end of the process. <laughs> and there were very few people about whom I can say that. Well, so yes, uh, I hope it was in the, for 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 some good reason. <laughs> well, yes, because you have considerable range. I mean, today we'll be talking about a topic that's in like early Byzantine history, but in the past few weeks, you've been coming up in the bibliography on Bessarion and people like that. And so, so uh, congratulations. There are not there are not many people uh, who have that kind of range. So anyway. And it's generally a pleasure to meet you. I've, I've been citing you since the 90s, uh, you know, from the uh, Psalos uh, edition, you know, before uh, Ryan, you know, produced his own. That was a sort of standard one that we don't saw. Anyway, okay. So we're going to talk about a very, very interesting person of the late fourth, early fifth century. And just so that the audience can follow us, I, I her name is pronounced in so many different ways that they made a joke about it in the TV show, The Good Place. I don't know if you ever saw that. Uh, I don't think so. Okay, so, but at the end, she actually appears. <laughs> uh, and none of them can get her name right. And so she just said, just call me Patty. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, in Greek, I would call her Ipatia. In the American English I'm used to, she's more often called Hypatia. Yeah. How do you pronounce her name, just so that people can know that you're referring to her when you do? I was just about uh, to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, okay, so, so use whatever is, what is more comfortable for you? That's always the same way. Yes, I'll try to use the same way because, you know, I'm used to, to pronounce it Hypatia, but it sounds strange. But perhaps we'll stick to that. Yes, that's uh, that's what I hear in English most of the time. Yeah. Okay. Good. Cool. All right. So why don't we start out by why don't you tell us who Hypatia was and why she's so important that so many books are written about her? Well, an engaging question, but there is a short way to answer. At least, she was a fifth-century philosopher. She was a Platonic one. She was a professor in Alexandria of Egypt. And uh, in order to make uh, clearer who she was, in part at least, in the briefest possible way, let me quote the words or, of uh, contemporary sources, both Christian and pagan. I won't be long. Uh, because they are our key witnesses, you know, it's important to, to draw uh, from them. So uh, the first one, a Christian, Socrates Scholasticus, the author of a church history, says that Hypatia, sorry, Hypatia, had inherited the legacy of the teaching of the Platonic school derived from Plotinus, and she expounded to a free audience, all the philosophical disciplines. And from all parts, they came to hear her, those who wanted to study philosophy. And I am ending the quote. So she was the daughter of a renowned scholar, Theon, himself a professor in the Museum of Alexandria. And from a young age, she was accustomed to studying, so to be, uh, her father's successor. Uh, according to the second main contemporary source, the pagan Damascus, which is ended over by an 11th century Byzantine encyclopedia named after its author, Suidas, she turned out yet to be by nature more gifted than her father, who was quite gifted anyway, so that she did not stop at the technical mathematical teachings he practiced, but dedicated herself to pure philosophy. What is pure philosophy, we'll perhaps see later. Yeah. Uh, third and last contemporary source, sorry, I don't want to be pedantic, but uh, we, we have to stick to them without indulging at, uh, to, to in, in, in those fantasies that so many literates did over the centuries. Um, so in the, word of, uh, in the words of a, a third 
source, the church history of Philostoges, who may have attended her lessons personally, Hypatia has shown her master, her father master, particularly in astronomy. And it came to pass that she was the teacher for many in mathematical sciences. So if you want to know in a nutshell who Hypatia was, she was a philosopher, a mathematician, an astronomer, and a professor, a very good one. And this is who Hypatia was for her contemporaries, both her fellow citizens and those who came to Alexandria expressly to join her circle, like her uh, best known pupil, Cynesius. And by the way, thanks to Cynesius's witness, which is kept uh, in his letters, probably the, the, the most valuable information on her teaching, we may understand that she was more than a university professor, at least much more than a university professor as we understand our job now. We must not make that mistake, I mean. Mm. Of, so she provided other teachings, more mysterious. We'll see about them if you wish. Even more importantly, she had a prominent political role, a role of advisor, of influencer of the ruling class of Alexandria. And this in an age of social conflict, of ethnical and of religious struggle. Uh, well, in an age, in, in Dodd's work, words, in an age of anxiety, of collective anxiety. So, it was not only for her scholarly excellence that she was renowned and she was a revered figure both in her city and all over the Greek speaking world of the late antique slash proto-Byzantine era. In Alexandria, she was admired and venerated according to the wording of the sources also for her sh sharp political intelligence, for her intellectual tolerance, which made her impartial, we are told, and therefore for her capacity of mediation, of political, mm -hmm. was listened to and loved by the various groups of citizens who disputed power in uh, the metropolis, in the polis. And uh, we are told by contemporary sources that even the rulers sent by the imperial government of Constantinople, such as the Augustal prefect Orestes, asked her advice and were the first to go and listen to her at her home. But if you ask me why so many books have been written about her, that is what really made her so famous along the centuries and, and, and up to now. Well, it is neither her philosophical and astronomical training, uh, nor her political skills, nor her being a, a guru, let's say. It was her murder, a horrible murder. She was stripped and disfigured with posters. Her eyes were put out. The remains of her body were scattered through the city and then burned. And it was a scandalous murder. All this was done by Christians, fanatical Christians, allegedly monks, at the direct orders of a fanatical bishop. A bishop who is still honored as a saint by the Christian churches. I love the fact that you started by emphasizing her life, you know, and what she did and what she was good at and what she was known for during her lifetime, uh, because her death has kind of overshadowed her life. And I think that's unfair to her um, for all that her death was, I mean, today we might call it something like an international incident. I mean, it, it, it you know, sent waves throughout the Eastern Mediterranean. But I think it is important to stress who she was, the person that she made herself into, and not what others did uh, to her, uh, which creates a very different kind of narrative. And I think Hypatia would have been 
important even if she had not died in that way. Female philosophers um, in antiquity, and especially in late antiquity, are just a very interesting group of people altogether. And, and this was, I think, known at the time. In her case, her murder transposed her from sort of history into legend <laughs> to a certain degree. And, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. But can you say a little bit more about what was going on in Alexandria at that time? That just elaborate a little bit on the tensions that were tearing apart the population of the city such that she ended up, you know, caught almost in the crossfires and, and killed in this brutal way. Yes, of course. You spoke of uh, the waves of uh, an international incident. And, uh, and yes, I don't know if it was an incident, but it was a mistake, certainly, uh, her murder. And in any case, uh, uh, we would still have uh, Synesius's epistolary. So we certainly would know uh, today uh, not only her name, but... Uh, her uh, excellence, certainly, we, we would. In any case, yes, Alexandria. You know, historians are used to think of fifth century in terms of a time of bipolar struggle between pagans and Christians. Soon after the Theodosian decrees, uh, which made Christianity the state religion and, 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 and forbade, forbade the performing of Hellenic cults. But things are a bit more complicated than that. And uh, in, in fact, what was going on in Alexandria was more a civil war than a religious war, in my view. And in any case, it was a three-handed power game. It was a triangle mm. in, in between or among the ancient pagan elite close to the representation of the imperial government uh, so the Christian officials who came uh, from the government, the other Christians, the, 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 let's say the, the new middle class of Christians who wanted to replace this representation of the imperial government and the influential, the deeply rooted community of the Jews. So we can say that what Hypatia did was trying to defend, you know, in her capacity of advisor, of influencer, of mm. the, uh, was trying to defend each religious group from its own integralist fringes, in a way. In other words, uh, I think we have to consider the transversality to the various groups of the categories of moderation integralism. Hypatia's te teaching must have been directed at helping the governing class to intellectually and pragmatically metabolize the passing from one religion to another in the name of a higher platonic universal belief. This, is, was, this was typically platonic. So she, she, she mm. was in a way the great mistress of a sort of uh, masonry, a proto-masonry in which the Alexandrian elite, the pagan, the Christian and the Jewish, but the moderate wings of them gathered in order to face the change and also to safeguard their interests in the passage from one hegemony of cult and thought to another, and in the alternation of the dominant groups at the imperial court of Constantinople. So, uh, you know, it's a, it, it, it was a complicated game, but uh, um, it was triggered by the clearly integralist, uh, let's say, attitude of uh, the bishops' acts, first acts of the uh, Cyril of Alexandria's episcopacy uh, since the very beginning. So when you say integral, you mean like what we would call extremists? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay, right, right. So it's a different terminology. So do I understand you correctly? So when, when you're talking about Hypatia's position, that she's drawing on this kind of platonic idea that 
religions aren't like true or false, but they just differ in the degree to which they can access the truth. And, you know, some see a bit more, some see a bit less, or some see it here, some see it there. But a platonic standpoint kind of, you know, is, is sort of a big umbrella, like it can encompass all of these different perspectives. So drawing on that perspective, it's not like she has a, a, a strong position, this is the truth and everything else is wrong. But it's like she, she can see where everybody is located on the map of religious truth. And, and so can mediate between them. Is, is that kind of what you're referring to? Yes. And also, in a way, if you, uh, for instance, if you take uh, Sinesius, uh, his, uh, her pupil, uh, and um, who would, would become uh, the bishop uh, uh, of Ptolemais, so a Christian bishop, and he mm -hmm. was born Christian, most probably. Well, if you read his letters, he doesn't believe a word of the Christian dogmas. Uh, he doesn't believe uh, in the resurrection itself, which... Yeah, yeah that's pretty crucial. Pretty, pretty crucial point, you know, of, of, of this religion. And, uh, and he, he writes it down. He compares these dogmas uh, to the pagan legends of the gods, it's something for the simple people who need beliefs, legends, right. uh, and uh, while uh, um, you know the 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 idea, uh, the monotheistic idea, the the very idea of monotheism is after all a Platonic slash uh, Plotinian idea. So I don't think uh, personally that any Platonic teacher. Uh, would think to have the truth in a fideistic way, in the uh, as, as if it was uh, uh, a pistis. You know, th mm -hmm. there was no pistis. The, there was no hope in uh, uh, in philosophy. There has never been. But uh, uh, the the Weltanschauung was uh, that of a single god, and under this Weltanschauung, the three different monotheistic uh, cults could live side by side. I think this was uh, uh, what uh, Hypatia taught, and this was the reason why she was so precious, because she helped this transition. Um, you must understand, uh, after the Theodosian, Theodosian de decrees, if you wanted to have um, you know, a state position, so to preserve uh, your family tradition, uh, your money, your uh, you know wealth and uh, and power and influence, you had to be baptized. But many of the of these uh, persons probably didn't want to lie, uh, didn't want to to be you know doing something uh, they didn't believe uh, in, and probably the the the, the teaching of the pious lie. That, that Hypatia was uh, able uh, uh, to, you know, to, to provide. Uh, if you see what, uh, uh, this is really uh, the importance of Synesius, you see what the attitude of Synesius was, but not only his, I mean, uh, in this uh, time, this early age uh, of uh, the, the state religion, the, 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 the transformation of Christianity into state religion, there was, uh, in any case, a syncretistic uh, attitude, uh, uh, which uh, we can even see in iconography. You mentioned earlier, you, you were pretty clear that she was murdered um, on the orders of Bishop Cyril of Alexandria. Mm -hmm. We know the people who did it, and these were like these para-ecclesiastical organizations that were um, yeah, something, but they were lay Christians who sort of dedicated part of their work to, to you know, the church or, you know, whatever the bishop told them or something like that. Now, in a lot of scholarship, this is softened. Like, I don't think many historians put it the way you do. Um, it, you're more likely to find statements like, well, things got out of hand and tempers flared and she just got caught in the middle and it was nothing quite so strong as, yeah, well, Cyril was behind it. Though I think a lot of people at the time did believe that Cyril was behind it. Um, and the government in Constantinople actually ordered an investigation <laughs> into what had happened. So why do you put it so strongly that you know, the responsibility for this lies with Cyril rather than 
some sort of nebulously defined climate of violence and anxiety, as you put it? Because we know history. <laughs> history is magistra, magistra vita, we say magistra vita, but no, it, this is out of the sources. Um, you know, there is one reason why this uh, was downplayed by the sources. And uh, the reason is that uh, Cyril uh, was a very important uh, uh, figure in the history of church, in the history of the dogmatics, uh, mm. of the Christian dogmatics themselves, with his doctrine, the mere physical uh, uh, doctrine, etc. But there is a, a, a very clear um, difference between uh, the Catholic sources and the Byzantine sources. If one reads the Byzantine sources and uh, not only the contemporary one, such as Socrates or Malala's uh, slightly later, or uh, John of Nikiu, mm, uh, mm-hmm. but if you read um, the Byzantine sources uh, till the 14th century, uh, the very news, Cyril was responsible for Hypatia's killing is totally clear. And uh, so there is, uh, there was a cover-up, there was a cover-up uh, at those times. Cyril uh, got away with, uh, with the Hypatia's murder. There was a case of corruption. Um, uh, Constantine Zuckerman has even found the name probably of the corrupted uh, functionary. Oh. Uh, but uh, there was a, a, a major cover-up in historiography, in Catholic historiography, in uh, Western historiography. But the evidence of serial culpability, I think, uh, in a nutshell, is uh, g- given by three sentences of three different inst- historians. Socrates, first of all, who says, I am quoting, no little infamy this carried out by serial since assassinations are things wholly extraneous to the spirit of Christ, which we cannot deny. More importantly, Malalas, who probably, you know, it's a sixth century, uh, very important uh, uh, chronographer, let's say, historian, because he, he, he gathers uh, uh, a more ancient sources and sometimes he gives us uh, the relics uh, of a tradition which is lost. Malalas says explicitly, having received license from their bishop, uh, the Parabalani attacked and burned Hypatia, the famous philosopher, on a pyre of faggots. And then uh, the, the, the real, um, I think, uh, um, clue is uh, that uh, uh, provided by John of McHugh. John of McHugh is with Cyril. He's a Coptic uh, uh, historian. So he is uh, uh, a follower of uh, Cyril's doctrines and politics. And that's why he reveals what probably the Egyptian milieu, the Coptic church knew for sure. While he says, the, I'm quoting, the entire people surrounded Cyril and triumphantly acclaimed him the new Theophilus. Theophilus was his uncle, the one responsible for the destruction of the Serapium and of the statue of Serapis, because he got read, he had read the city of the last drag of idolatry. So he not someone else. Right. Of course, there are many other, uh, but this in a nutshell is the, the reason why I don't think is uh, any longer useful to, you know, to, to, to indulge to, uh, to mystification and the church has uh, uh, asked, uh, has apologized for so many crimes, uh, for the fourth crusade, uh, for uh, the witches burned, for, you know, yeah. possible sin. And perhaps uh, this is one uh, uh, still waiting, uh, you know, to be 
<laughs> yeah, I, I think that it costs zero um, because he was such a major theologian. Um, in fact, probably the most important theologian before the split, uh, you know, Chalcedonians and anti-Chalcedonians, both of whom claimed him. Um, so all subsequent theology is sort of Cyrillian and, and explicitly so. Yes. Nevertheless, there was no saint's life written about Cyril. Uh, there's one in the 12th century, uh, which I think is on Aras Road, because he found that, wait, there are no, <laughs> there are no, there's no life of Cyril, so I should write something. And it's very generic. And he also wasn't represented in churches, uh, hardly at all. Um, there are a tiny number of exceptions, but I think this cost him. In other words, his, his presence in the kind of, you know, Byzantine hagiographic imagination is very limited uh, compared to other church fathers who are mentioned much more often. Yes. Uh, but anyway, so you subtitled the book, The True Story. What other kinds of stories circulate about Hypatia? I mean, tell us a few. Your book mentions a lot, but what are some of the more interesting ones that you thought you needed to push back against? Well, uh, first of all, this uh, subtitle is intentionally provocative. <laughs> It relates uh, uh, to the contemporary uh, historiographical notion of false or fake history. Ah. According to this, history is always false for two reasons. First, uh, as stated by an Italian philosopher whom I like to, to, to cite, Benedetto Croce, all history is contemporary history. Yeah. It means that every era in explaining the past twists it to serve its own interests, reading it in the light of its own political dialectic. And this is the first reason. Second, history is uh, most often of written by the winners. And a scholar has to apply to any narration handed down through the centuries the old jolly critical method. He has to unveil what has been called the blank space of propaganda, which is the space that separate us from the past, from any past. Truth can be reached, of course, yet only by understanding falseness. This is the, let's say, the, the, the point. So this happens through a process of cross-interrogation of the witnesses, in our case, the ancient sources, which in my book proceeds by arguments uh, and uh, um, so mm -hmm. I try to classify the versions and variations with, which are of course more nuanced and uh, more numerous than the ones I have now uh, cited. But yet on the other hand, it is also true that mystification religious, political, historical, literary, has been the restless mill wheel that has kept Hypatia alive. Uh, I think that this is, uh, um, you know, false history uh, has to be uh, embraced uh, and uh, in a way understood and admired, not only in order to unveil the truth, but also in order to uh, understand uh, really what a historical figure is in its entirety. Because mm. is not only uh, the woman who taught, studied, uh, and uh, was murdered in the fifth century. Hypatia is also all those masks, all those ideas that she has created along the centuries. So uh, even uh, exhilarating confusion in which each period and each ideology has uh, transfigured uh, that homicide and that uh, woman uh, producing uh, time after time uh, Hypatia disguised according to the period's concerns, transform into the symbol of an idea or even just into the banner of a current political movement. Well, this is really very interesting. So yes, the true story is first of all, understanding all the falseness 
and taking account of them uh, and enjoying them. And then uh, we need to ascertain the truth. So it's not uh, uh, only a matter of censorship or, uh, you know, no, we have these uh, uh, fantastic uh, uh, metamorphoses uh, of Hypatia to a, a free thinker. Uh, John Tolans war was one of the first yeah. fans say, of a figure. And then we have the Enlightenment, we have the Illuminists, we have uh, Diderot, we have Voltaire, and uh, and then we had the Romantic, and then the decadent idea of the last pagan, you know, of this uh, decadence, which which was not a decadence as we know, because this was the cradle of the Byzantine Platonism, uh, the one uh, which uh, was rocking in Alexandria while uh, Hypatia uh, was still alive and even after her. So everything I, I have just mentioned, few things in, in my book, uh, I, I, I hope to have drawn an accurate and meticulous account of all the distortions, masks, disguisement that uh, Hypatia received. But I think that all of them add a little bit to the importance, to the relevance, to the history, to our history and to the history of uh, the ancient world that she represents. Yes, yeah, so you show in the book how each age has the Hypatia that it wants. And, you know, as you mentioned, some have wanted to see her as a free thinker, which no one would call a free thinker, anyone in the you know mainstream platonic tradition of that time. You, you, were, you, were, you know, were in that tradition. That's what you did. Or as a kind of advocate of science against the church, um, as if the church was interested in science at that time, particularly, it wasn't. And all of these other uh, transformations, as, as you put it, there's one I want to ask you about in particular, uh, and perhaps because uh, our age might be interested in a, a different Hypatia, which is Hypatia the feminist, um, oh. or, or feminist icon, right? And you say that she wasn't a proto-feminist, but let me, let me try to make the case, and, and you tell me where this might be going wrong. So Hypatia was a woman who was claiming pretty self-confidently, a position of intellectual authority. Intellectual authority at, in the ancient world is masculine coded, right? It's something that men do. It's a, it's, a, it's a masculine attribute. She was also claiming social leadership, right? And political influence. And again, these are things that men do. In a society that she knew women were not expected to do that, where it's generally frowned on, upon when women did that. And nevertheless, she did it without apologizing to anybody. Now, for sure, there's no way to link her to any kind of feminist idea, right? It's not like she's calling for some kind of social transformation or anything like that. But doesn't the way she lived her life and the choices that she made, you know, reflect a certain under a, a critical distancing from the gender order of late Roman society? Well, let me contradict you. Let me challenge what you say. You uh, know, in, in a way, because of course, Hypatia is uh, an example, a bright example of a great woman, etc. But I don't think anyone would um, mention Cleopatra as a feminist icon, for instance, or um, I don't know, or has uh, anyone. In any case. She wasn't claiming this that position or that le leadership. She had it. She held it strongly, fiercely. And yet, the female power that her character impersonated was not the kind of power or of uh, emancipation women have reached or have ever aimed to reach along the history of feminism and have reached uh, today after a struggle which was uh, eventually won, I should say, in the 20th century. But uh, uh, Hypatia's power had to do with a slightly, though inspiring, different sphere. It was the priestly sphere. It was the conservation of uh, an esoteric, a, a, a secret philosophical tradition, 
which made her one of the members of the lineage, let's say, of, uh, of female philosophers who are uh, constantly present in antiquity. Apollonius, uh, the Stoic, according uh, to Fortius's uh, uh, Bibliotheca, wrote a, a, a comprehensive treatise about the women who philosophized. Mm. of uh, Athens uh, also uh, wrote about the Pythagoreans uh, and Diogenes Laertius, the, the biographer of, um, of the male, let's say, philosophers included uh, women, many women. But uh, what's, most, what's, what's more interesting is that uh, uh, thanks to Hypatia, during the Querelle des Anciennes et des Modernes in the uh, 17th century, Menagius, uh, uh, Gilles Menage, discovered uh, the existence of 65 female philosophers and, uh, and, uh, and wrote Historia Mulierum Philosopharum. And I can go on uh, because yeah. uh, it not the only one, but I mean that in antiquity and late antiquity, there was a succession of uh, uh, women who had become perhaps, uh, uh, they were often gifted with psychic faculties, according to the sources, but they had become the depository of that oral tradition of the secrets of Platonism that are the same ones that Sinesius mentions uh, in his Dion and in uh, his letters referring to Hypatia, and sometimes uh, uh, referring to the relationship between Socrates and Aspasia, maybe with a, a nuance uh, of uh, autobiographical, uh, let's say, memory of Hypatia. So the, this the superiority of the female in the super-rational sphere is a heritage uh, of the late antique spirituality and of mm, both Pythagorean and Platonic, which is also received by the Kabbalah and, and um, through the Middle Ages. There is a Byzantine model of a female philosopher, uh, which is both Pythagorean and Platonic. Uh, and uh, and uh, in Psellus, you mentioned him before, the Egyptian, Egyptian, uh, uh, you know, uh, is uh, is always Hypatia, and is always associated with Theano, the 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 greatest uh, uh, Pythagorean leader. So I think that uh, since uh, uh, sometimes in uh, uh, there is a naive rationalism in uh, the modern catalogers uh, of uh, of these uh, eminent women. But there was an esoteric wisdom associated as the reverse of the coin to a strictly technically exoteric competence, always mm. in these uh, biographies. And it seems that Hypatia is one of uh, these cases. So undoubtedly a mathematician uh, on one hand, but on the other hand, uh, uh, more obscure, but no less credible, uh, sacerdotal uh, figure, which accounts also not only for her gender, but for, for her political role uh, and for the condition of last illustrious heir to an intellectual dynasty, that of Theon, which was, uh, you know, in touch with, uh, yeah. with it. So uh, in a nutshell, um, of course, Hypatia is a, a great example uh, uh, a great uh, woman, a great uh, female figure, but she's not. I don't think she he she she's something something new that has. Uh, oh right, yes. She's yeah. part of a tradition, and we should uh, learn about this tradition uh, because this is part uh, of the oral heritage of our gender. Uh, which is a gender that um, less often uh, wrote its knowledges, uh, its wisdom, but uh, very often uh, had the torch passed uh, in, uh, in, in this, uh, let's say, secret way. 
I mean, it doesn't have to be secret in, in necessarily in a mysterious way, but it's it's a tradition that isn't often just sort of recorded in explicit texts, with one possible exception. And this is something I looked into sort of a while ago. I think that a prominent part of this tradition is the Pythagorean Platonic, as you mentioned. I mean, Plato makes, Socrates in the Republic makes explicit arguments for the intellectual equality of women. Um, and I don't think it's an accident that, that it's the Platonic tradition that contains most of these prominent female philosophers um, in antiquity. And I think also even into Byzantium, if you look at the preface of um, Anna Komnena's history, she mentions the Pythagoreans and the Platonists as people she studied. <laughs> yeah, of course. I know why you're saying that. That's that's great. Anyway, there is much more to say about this tradition. Of course, uh, it's uh, and it's uh, endless. I mean, uh, uh, during the Byzantine millennium, uh, we have this uh, uh, half subterranean stream of uh, Platonic. Uh, mm quote, pagan, uh, but uh, as, as we have said, Platonism is not a confessional. So uh, they were also pagan, but also Christians. Yeah. And, uh, and is uh, half, um, half hidden and, uh, and half uh, evident, but uh, we had women, prominent women up to the Paleologian times that were certainly initiated. And then this was passed over to the Renaissance, which is only the last of uh, the, the Byzantine yeah. Renaissances, and um, this ended up to uh, Ficina's Academy, and then women were excluded when uh, this tradition uh, uh, got back to the West, but not... Oh, right. There's a lot more that we can talk about regarding Hypatia, but we're almost out of time. And I wanted to close with a, a question that has to do with her modern representation. And that is specifically the film Agora. I, I know you've sort of discussed it in the past. Um, if the audience doesn't know it, I strongly recommend that they watch it. I mean, it's however you react to it, it's definitely worth watching. Yeah, oh, it, it's very simple. Uh, I think uh, I liked that film very much because Alejandro Menavar followed one of the main, and I would say more alluring trends in uh, his interpretation of Hypatia, the version given by the Illuminists, that of Diderot and Voltaire and uh, uh, even Montesquieu in a way. So using her as an example of the, and I quote uh, uh, Diderot and Voltaire, excesses of fanaticism, les excès du fanatisme, he made his film uh, about uh, old and new religious and or political uh, fundamentalism. There is a clear transference between the ancient Parabalani, that is Cyril's uh, militia, and contemporary Taliban's uh, Talibani, or better those militants of the self-appointed new Islamic caliphate whose violences stroke the first decade of our century where the when the movie was, uh, was shot. You may have noticed uh, in the original soundtrack that the Christian Parabalani speak with a marked Arab accent. Mm -hmm. and, uh, Amenavar aim was to show that uh, fundamentalism and violence do not belong necessarily to one religion, but they mark, and this is the idea of Voltaire, of Diderot and Montesquieu, religion itself once it reaches to temporal power. So Islam today, like the beginning of the political power of Christian church, as soon as it became a state religion at the very time of Hypatia's murder, so shortly after the Theodosian decrees, were in a way paralleled in, uh, in a Menavar movie. So Amenavar as the luminist does not blame religion itself, but precisely the merging, the overlapping of priestly sphere, which is what uh, Socrates Scholastic, uh, Scholasticus reproaches to Cyril, that of avidly eroding uh, uh, the state uh, power, in a way that was never previously allowed to the priestly sphere. That was the, the, the problem with, uh, with Cyril. And uh, Amenabar does not blame religion 
uh, itself, but the, the, the overlapping of temporal power and the priestly sphere. And uh, in a, I think that uh, uh, Socrates Scholasticus, from his point of view, which was the one of Constantinople, so the one of a state which for a millennium kept separate the two powers, uh, I think that Socrates was the first historian to blame this feature. He blamed it in Cyril's policy, but I think uh, this is a feature which is the definition of, uh, of religious uh, fundamentalism itself. So I think this um, the movie by Amenavar gives us not only uh, Hypatia, but uh, a very important slice of the meaning uh, that uh, Hypatia had uh, uh, in our culture, as well as uh, a further proof of uh, the very fact that all history is contemporary history. Yes. Uh, yeah, I thought it was a beautifully made movie. I understood what it was trying to say about that. I was much more troubled about the kind of racialization of these differences. That is, I, I, I didn't like the fact that the, the good Christians are blonde and blue eyed and the bad Christians all look like, you know, Arabs. I, I mean, that bothered me. I don't like it when Christianity tries to externalize its own uh, luggage and kind of, you know, throw it off onto other people. Even during that decade, when supposedly we were concerned about terrorists, I have never been more concerned about, you know, terrorists from outside the U.S. living in this country than from the people in it and the people in it who, you know, are armed and fanatical and dangerous. And, and now we're seeing, I mean, those things were all here. Those things were all here in that decade. Yes, but uh, if I may add, maybe we are out of yeah. time. No, but no. Uh, of course, it's very sensible what you say. But uh, this uh, movie was a pamphlet, let's say. It was a pamphlet about the fundamentalist nature of the beginning of, a, of any new religion in a way. Sure. So, um, in my view. But um, just an anecdote, a brief one. You know, Pope Ratzinger, back uh, yes. in 16th, during his papacy, he celebrated Cyril of Alexandria, praising in public uh, occasion, praising the energy, and I quote, of his ecclesiastic uh, governance. Oh boy. Well, I, I was, you know, while uh, uh, reading these, uh, um, I was a bit uh, struck. And, and as soon as I found someone who was acquainted uh, these uh, years later, a few years ago, three years ago, uh, personally acquainted with the Pope, the ex-Pope now, a mathematician, a prominent Italian mathematician who's my friend and is very close to Ratzinger, I asked him to ask Ratzinger why. He, he he uttered such words and why he did not uh, mention uh, uh, Hypatia or in any case why. Mm. And um, I have two letters uh, written by Ratzinger, the, the, the PDF of two letters written by Ratzinger to this friend of mine, the mathematician. In the first, he says that he didn't know about Hypatia. <laughs> what? Yes, he did not. And he was uh, very sorry about her uh, and all uh, his prayers uh, would, um, uh, would be, you know, uh, for her. And the second letter in which he said, but, you know, it's unavoidable. When new religion comes out, fundamentalism is unavoidable. This are the very words of the ex-pope. Sure. <laughs> So, I mean, it's, uh, you see, they, they merge. Yeah. The Amenavar and uh, with his uh, tradition uh, uh, from the 18th century and the Realpolitiker, let's say, the, the insider of, uh, of Roman papacy, the ex-Pope, they say the same thing. At the very beginning of a religion, fundamentalism is unavoidable. But we have Hypatia. And, and we can, uh, uh, you know, follow her example 
and try to to fight. And terrorists can also be wearing suits and have political positions. They don't necessarily have to be the cinematic <laughs> version that we know. Yes, of um, course. But uh, yeah, I take comfort that a, a woman like her existed and did what she did. Um, and, and she did it for a very long time. We should also mention that she was fairly old by the time that she was killed. I mean, that. I think she was about 45. Oh, 45. Because, oh, I thought maybe a bit older. Yes, there, there are discussions about the, the date, but yeah, uh, yeah. because Malalas, you know, says he was Palia, but uh, a woman was Palia at 45. Yeah. But in any case, yes, she did a lot. Uh, and uh, and in any case, we are grateful what, for what she did. Uh, and... Um, and if she was not a real feminist, she is certainly a great example for uh, for everyone, not only our gender, but particularly for women. That's a great note to end on. Um, so thank you very much, Silvia, for, for coming on. I, I really appreciate your insight uh, on, on this fascinating character, Hypatia. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you for... Uh, uh, for hearing me and for your patience. <laughs> no, 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 my pleasure. And I hope we manage to meet in person at some point. Of course, we'll, uh, I, uh, we'll see. I mean, uh, you you mentioned you might not be able to come to Venice. Uh, and I understand because it's August and uh, and very hot. And but... oh, that's not the reason we start classes that week. Oh, really? Yes, it's oh. the first week of classes. It makes it very difficult to go to the International Congress. <laughs> understand well in any case there will be will certainly be another occasion and yeah, yeah. Uh, in any case let's keep in touch it was great uh meeting you uh at last and, and talking and chatting and i would uh, go on uh, uh, <laughs> forever Take have care, a nice Sylvia. afternoon and uh bye bye